Well, good morning, New Hope family. How are we this morning? Good. That was that was better than 7:45. Not quite as good as the nine. Let's see. Let's try again. How are we this morning, New Hope? It's 10:30. All right, that's what I like to hear. It is a pleasure to be in the house of the Lord with you this morning. Uh, my name is Matt Thompson. I'm the student minister here. Uh, and man, this is just, uh, just, just an honor. Man, I love being in the house of the Lord, worshiping God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Uh, well, if you didn't know, we have been studying the book of John all year long here at New Hope. And for the summer, we're taking a two-month break where we're walking through the Psalms. And today, we're going to be in Psalm chapter 19. So if you have your Bible uh, you can turn there now. If not, there's one in the chair just in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible, that is our gift to you. We want you to have that taken home with you. Uh, it is yours. But if you don't have one, there's one there for you. We're going to be in Psalm 19. Uh, but before we get there, I need to tell you an embarrassing story about myself. Is that okay? Okay, Rob, close your ears wherever you are. Don't want to give him any more ammo. But uh, here's an embarrassing story. First of all, how many of you have ever done something dumb? Show of hands. Okay, so most of us have done something dumb. The rest of us are liars. Um, <laughs> confession was last week, so go online. You know, you can, you can repent here in a little bit. But uh, we've all done some stuff that's maybe not the brightest, right? Well, here's an example from my own life. So Caroline and I got married back in 2019. And the first year of our marriage, we lived just off of a college campus. I was still in grad school, so we lived in a little townhouse just off the campus. And we're out one day around the campus doing some shopping. We're, I think we're at the dollar store. And so we go in, we do our shopping, we come back outside, and I turn the keys, and the car won't start. And so I get out, and I pop the hood. Now let's pause right there for just a second. I don't know why I popped the hood, to be honest with you. I don't know if I just thought that magically that day I was going to somehow know the intricacies of a car engine, but I figured, you know, when your car doesn't work, people pop the hood. That's what you do, right? But me looking under the hood of a car is like a person blindfolded and in handcuffs trying to juggle, like, in front of them. Like, I, I don't know what I was thinking, but that's what I did. Anyways, like, I can change a tire, I can jumpstart a car, and I can point at the engine, and that's about the extent of my car knowledge. But for some odd reason, I decide I'm going to pop the hood of the car. So I look, and I happen to have a battery tester with me. So I get that out, I test the battery, and I come to the conclusion, oh, I, I think the battery's dead. So I get the battery out. That in and of itself is a miracle. I get the battery out. I walk back to our house, which it wasn't like crazy. It was like maybe a quarter mile. I walk back to the house, get in my car, go to AutoZone, get a new battery, bring it back, and put the new one in. I turn the keys, and the 2012 Honda Accord that my wife still drives today still won't start. And I'm thinking, oh, man, what is the problem here? So I get back out, open the hood for the second time. Again, don't know why I did it. I'm looking at the car engine. By the way, it started to pour down rain by this point. So I'm out in the hurricane looking at the, the engine of the car. Caroline's in the passenger seat, just minding her own business. Finally, I feel so defeated that I shut the hood. I sit back down into the seat, and I'm like, I don't know what the problem is. And just as I sit back down into the car, Caroline leans over to me and says, maybe it's out of gas. What I learned that day is that 2012 Honda Accords do not notify you when the fuel level is getting low. You just have to be a responsible adult and monitor the fuel gauge yourself, right? And this story reminds me that a car with no gas in the gas tank isn't really a car. Because a car is meant for transportation, right? It's meant to get you from place to place, to travel, to get you somewhere. And without any gas in the gas tank, that car can't do what it was meant to do. It can't fulfill its purpose. Just keep that in the back of your mind today as we get into Psalm chapter 19. So in a moment, we're going to read that text together. But first, I want to pose this question that the text is going to help us answer throughout today as we read this passage. So here's the question. What do the things I know about God bring about in me? 
In other words, what do the things that I know about God compel me to do? And as we study this text in Psalm 19, we're going to see David touch on a few different ways in which God reveals himself to us. So let's take a look at the first one. We're going to read the first six verses of Psalm 19. Here it is. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. This is the word of the Lord this morning. So in this first section, these first six verses, we see the glory of God revealed in his creation. Another term for this we might use is natural revelation. God revealing himself to us naturally in creation. We look around, we look up to the sky and see who he is. And in David's commentary here on God's natural revelation, he points to the sun as a specific example, and he kind of fleshes that out a little bit more. And if we look back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 16, where God is creating the sun and the moon, we see that he creates the greater light to govern the day, the lesser light to govern the night, and he puts them both into the vault of the sky and sets them there to give light on the earth, to separate light from darkness. Now, Because of modern science, we know that the sun and the moon are two very different things, right? But did you know that the sun is exactly 400 times farther away from the earth than the moon is? And did you know that the sun is exactly 400 times larger than the moon? Which means they have the exact same angular size. And you hear that and go, okay, great, I don't know what that means. Well, essentially it means from our perspective in our sky, the sun and the moon appear to be the exact same size. And obviously that shifts based on the seasons a little bit, but essentially they are the same size in our sky. And that's the only place in the known universe where that's the case, because God made them for earth. He created them for us, and we see the majesty and the beauty of God in his creation. In science, there's this thing called the anthropic principle, which essentially asks this question, what are the things that are, have to be so finely tuned in our universe for any of this to exist? And there's a laundry list of things in, that answer that question, you know, things like if the neutron was slightly more massive than the proton, then all, like the universe couldn't exist, or if gravity was slightly more or less with respect to mass in the planets, none of this could exist, the universe would implode. And there's a lot of other things on that list when we talk about that. And those are just a few examples of many that point to the beauty of our creator. And it's for those reasons that scientists like Lord Kelvin, who wrote that science positively affirms a creative power. Or other names you may have heard, like Francis Bacon or Isaac Newton or Albert Einstein, who all affirm the presence of a creator. Because how could you look at the universe and come to any other conclusion? One of my favorite quotes about the science of creation comes from the renowned astronomer Sir William Herschel, who famously said that the undevout astronomer must be mad. Because how can you observe the complexities of the universe and not see the beauty of a creator? I once heard a pastor who was asked about the Big Bang Theory versus creation and all those theories, and he responded this way. He said, go out to your garage and take everything out. 
Get rid of all the boxes, the tools, the kids' toys. Back your cars out. Everything out until it's completely empty. And then wait 20 minutes and see if Alexis appears. And if not, give it two hours. And if still not, give it 20 years and see if that Lexus appears. Another way of putting it is if you observe a computer, and I asked you to look at that computer and tell me how that computer came to be without using man in your explanation. You might say, well, gosh, I don't know how to do that. Because it's illogical, right? Because if you think about how a computer came to be and you can't use man in your explanation, then the answer has to come from within the computer itself. And that doesn't make sense. And the same is true of our universe. The skies proclaim the work of the creator's hands. So in these first six verses in Psalm 19, we have natural revelation. God revealing himself through nature, through the created world around us. And then David, in the next five verses, is going to move from natural revelation to what we call special revelation. And this is the word of God. And just a few weeks ago, Rob preached on Psalm 119 and the value uh, or the importance of valuing God's word above our own word. And this five verses here is kind of a brief snapshot of that concept. So let's read it together. Starting in verse 7, you can follow along with me here. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They're more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They're sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. This is the word of God. So in this passage, we are told that God's law... God's word does about six different things. And sure, we get some descriptors of God as well, some adjectives like perfect, trustworthy, right, pure, radiant, sweet, firm, and and others. But we're also told what the word does. It refreshes the soul. It makes you wise. It brings joy. It gives light. It endures forever. So you ask these questions, do you want to be refreshed? Do you want to become wise? Do you want to have joy in your life? Do you want to see the light? Then meditate on the law of the Lord. Study the word of God and you will come to know the God who refreshes, brings joy, makes wise, and provides light. You know, in this, these five verses, this last one, verse 11, really stands out to me when I read this. When it says, by them, meaning God's law, his statutes, his decree, the word of God, by them, your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. So not only does God's law bring forth and provide these wonderful things that we just talked about, but it actually points to danger, and it warns us against evil as well. Because that's what light is, right? Light allows you to see. It lights up the path in front of you, not only to see the good things and the things that will bless our lives and bring joy and all those things, but also to warn us against danger, to see the trouble in the path that may be ahead. And, you know, there are some other signs or things that warn us against evil. One that comes to mind is maybe the the warning against the decay in our bodies. You know that sound that you make when you stand up after you get to a certain age? That that sound? Yeah, that's, that's a warning sign of decay that's happening in your body. Or when your hairline starts to recede after you have that fourth kid, you know. Rob knows what I'm talking about. That It starts to go. Those are some signs 
of things ahead. You know, that day is coming fast. I think it's coming for Ben pretty quickly, too. Actually, I think we have a photo. Yeah, it's, it's, that day is coming. It's going to be there. It's a warning sign of the evil, the decay that's coming. And I'll, I play fair, right? Okay, I know it's coming for me, too. There it is. Yeah, see? That's what you have to look forward to, Caroline. You're welcome. Um, but, man, of course, it's coming for Rob as well. Oh, man. <laughs> Whew. Look what that filter does to him, man. One day. Uh, but those are signs of the evil that is to come. Our body does that for us. The law of the Lord helps to guard our hearts as well. So just like we have signs of old age or of things in our own world that we might see ahead of us, the word of God helps to light up our path and to see the evil ahead of us. It helps to guard our hearts against that evil so that we remain in the presence of God and follow his path of righteousness. Did you know that we're created to live in the presence of God? God is our natural environment. One thing that I find interesting, if you go back again to Genesis chapter 1 in the account of creation, when God created fish, he spoke to the sea. He says, let the water teem with living creatures. When he created trees, he spoke to the land, to the earth. He said, let the land produce vegetation. You know what he spoke to when he created us? Humanity? He spoke to himself. He's speaking to the triune God in Genesis 1.26 when he says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. God spoke to the environment to create the fish, the trees, and even humanity because God is our natural environment. You take a fish out of the sea, what happens? It dies. You take a tree out of the earth and uproot it, what happens? It dies. You take us away from God, we cannot survive. The presence of God is our natural environment. So the best way to live life is to know the creator of life. And the special gift that I have been given to get to know him is his word. So let's read the next two verses. Moving on to verse 12. This is 12 and 13. It says, but who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will become blameless, innocent of great transgression. So I think this question here in verse 12 is rhetorical, but I also think there's a pretty obvious answer. Who can discern their own errors? Well, that would be the one that who reads and meditates and studies the word of God, right? Scripture is a lamp that reveals hidden faults and leads to confession and repentance. You can, you can check out last week's sermon for that. And by the way, if you've been sitting on that for a week, we talked about the practice of confession and the importance of that in our lives, and you maybe have been stirring on that for seven days and just now are coming to a place where man, I I think this is the time I I need to confess and to repent and to turn from my sin, but man, I I don't really know what that looks like or how to do it. Man, if today's the day, Rob or myself or any of our staff or elders, we would love to just help you through that and walk with you and what that means. So please don't hesitate to reach out and come find us because as we see right here in verse 12, we just read that we serve a God who is a God of forgiveness, even for the sins that we commit unknowingly, but it takes confession and repentance on our part. So then we move on to verse 13 where David pleads to keep himself from willful sin. And again, this is pointing to those that know God. The word of God is also a powerful restraint that helps prevent the people of God from participating in sin. The more you know God, the more righteous you become. This is a preserving effect that scripture has on those that obey it. So David, who has now reflected on God's revelation both in creation and in his word, 
is staunchly aware of his own unworthiness. You see, the more we know about God sometimes, the easier it is to see that distinct contrast between me and God, his holiness, my sinfulness. But we have the gracious forgiveness of God that we can cling to in those moments. So let's revisit this question that we've been wrestling with as we read through this text all morning. What do the things I know about God bring about in me? I have seen his glory in creation and in the world around me. I've seen the wisdom and the light and the joy that comes from his word, and I've learned about his character through scripture. What do those things bring about in me? And to answer that question, I think it's helpful to consult James's earthly brother, or sorry, Jesus's earthly brother, James. We're going to be a little bit of studying in James. If you turn to James chapter 2, we're going to read a little bit of this passage here this morning as well, because James helps to answer this question. We're going to start in verse 14 of James 2, where he writes just this question. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? So he poses this question, and then he goes on to set up this hypothetical scenario where you're walking down a road, and you come across a person on the side of the road who is naked and hungry. They have no, clue, no clothes, no food. And you walk up to them, and you say, man, stay warm and eat well. But you don't give them clothes, and you don't provide them any food. Can you really expect that to make a difference? Can you expect them to go and heed your words of staying warm and eating well? if you don't provide for those needs that aren't being met. In the same way, James compares that situation to our faith. He writes, a faith that is not accompanied by good works is worthless. He's saying faith is not just believing in something. And in verse 19, this is pretty convicting, he goes on to say this, listen, you believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. So you believe in God, great. That's a pretty low bar. Even the demons believe in God. It's not about just believing. It's about knowing God and what knowing God then compels you to do. Now, I don't want us to be confused because it's not the works that save us. There's actually a common misunderstanding among some biblical scholars when you compare this passage in James 2 with with what Paul writes in Ephesians 2 where he says, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself, but it is a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So the contrast here is that Paul says, you are saved by grace through faith, not by works. And what some people seem to think is that James is saying you're saved by works, because he's going to sum up here at the end of chapter 2, we'll read in a moment, he's going to say, faith without works is dead. But that's not what James is saying. He's not saying the works save you. What he is saying is that he wants us to understand the two different meanings of this word faith. When you read James 2 in your English Bible, you're going to see the word faith a bunch of times in there. And the word that James uses in the Greek when he wrote this is the word pistis. And there's actually two different meanings to that word. The first one is the pistis of the demons. You believe in something. I acknowledge that it exists. I can see it there, and so, yeah, it's real. I believe in it because I know. The second kind is a true faith, the one that Paul writes about that produces works. One of the best examples in our modern culture, I think, comes in the form of Harry Potter. So if you haven't seen it, it's been 20 years, there's going to be some spoilers, sorry. Like, you're behind the game. At the end of Harry Potter, the very last book or movie, whichever is your preference, when the evil Lord Voldemort, things are coming to a close, and Dumbledore is gone, and Harry Potter is dead, they all think it's the end of the world, and he stands up before all the people and he says, from this day forth, 
you put your faith in me. And I think that's a really interesting way of putting it because it doesn't say from this day forth you just believe in me because they all know he exists. He's standing right there in front of them. They can see him. They can feel him and touch him. They know he's real. But what he's calling them to is, man, all hope is lost. you got to put your faith in me. There's a call to action in there. He wants them to come to the dark side to do what I do and do what I say. There's an action that's accompanied by that kind of faith. And this is the kind of faith, not in Lord Voldemort, but in God that James is calling his readers to here in this passage. The reason there's so much debate and controversy over whether James and Paul contradict each other is because many people don't recognize that difference between those two meanings of that word. James and Paul both desire and encourage believers to have a works-producing kind of faith. In fact, James goes on to give two examples of this. People whose actions prove their faith, not the other way around. And the first is the patriarch Abraham in verse 21 in James 2. He writes, Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And then he moves to the polar opposite side of the spectrum with the prostitute Rahab. Verse 25, he says, In the same way was not even Rahab, the prostitute, considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. These people had, a, had faith. And not just a I believe in you, God kind of faith, but a man, my actions are influenced because of what I know about you kind of faith. Robert Sumner puts it this way. He writes, faith is a matter of the heart, not the head. A living, saving faith is a working faith. And that's the point. We talked about it earlier. Look at verse 26. James sums up the whole thing this way. As the body without spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Faith without works is dead. Eugene Peterson puts it this way in the message translation, James 2.26. He writes, the very moment you separate body from spirit, you end up with a corpse. Separate faith and works, you get the same thing, a corpse. Because that's what happens when body and spirit are separated, right? All that's left is a corpse. That spirit is gone from that physical space. You're left with a corpse, this translation has always stuck with me. Faith without works is just a corpse. Uh, when I was a senior in high school, when I was 18, my brother uh, Michael passed away from brain cancer. And he'd been battling for several years, so we kind of knew this day was coming. But the day that he died, I remember my dad came to school and pulled me out of class. And I get home, come to the living room. You know, he'd been on hospice, so he got to pass at home. And when I got home, I go into the living room of my house. You know, my mom's crying on the ground, as you can imagine. And I remember going up to his body, lying on the couch, and giving him a hug and feeling his skin and how cold he was. And I say he loosely because that wasn't my brother. What was left on the couch in my parents' living room was a corpse. The joy, the, the life, the warmth that once existed in that body was no longer in that space. And what was left behind was a corpse. But here's the thing. That is not how I remember my brother that day is a brief snapshot in the history of his life. I remember him as the guy who loved basketball and Dallas sports teams and played the drums and ministered to inner city kids with the word of God and was obsessed with mac and cheese and ice cream and loved the Lord because that's who my brother was. The body lying on the couch that day was just a corpse and that is the difference between a faith that even the demons possess 
and a faith that compels us to do good works. Because a faith that does not produce good works is not a faith at all. Friends, believing in God does not make you a follower of Christ. Only following Christ can do that. So when we see God revealed in different ways, when we read Psalm 19 and we look around us and we see God's glory revealed in creation, when we meditate on his word and see his character revealed to us in scripture, what does that knowledge of God bring about in us? Do we just believe him? Or do we have a faith that compels us to live righteously? A faith without works is like a car with no gas in the gas tank. It can't do what it's supposed to do. It's not really a car because it can't fulfill that purpose. And if your faith in Jesus doesn't compel you to do good works, then it's not able to do what it's supposed to do. And it's not really a faith at all. The last verse of this psalm is verse 14, where David prays for his words and the meditation of his heart to be pleasing to God. He writes it this way. He concludes by saying, May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. As I was reading this passage in my study Bible, um, and if you don't have a study Bible, man, I can't recommend them highly enough. It just, it's a super helpful tool. There's little tidbits of information and questions in the margins and things that just really help with personal study. And so I highly recommend it. But as I was reading mine this week, there's a little question that was written in the margins next to verse 14. And I want to share that question with you. Here it is. Would you change the way you live if you knew that every word and thought would be examined by God first? Obviously, if we think about this critically, we know that this already happens, right? Because we serve a God who is omniscient, all-knowing. One of my favorite, uh, some of my favorite moments in the Gospels is when Jesus is talking to somebody, and then the text, it says that line about how, well, Jesus knew what they were thinking. So then he goes on and says, blah, 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 whatever the thing is. And that happens time and time again in the Gospels. I love that because we serve a God who is all-knowing. And so this already takes place, but if you stopped before every word that came out of your mouth and every action that you partook in, how might that change if you stopped and said, man, what might God think of this? How might you live differently? That's a tough question to answer, but in reflecting on Psalm 19, we're drawn to a few things. You see, we see God revealing himself in these different ways. Through nature, we see his power and our finiteness. Through scripture, we see his holiness and our sinfulness. Through daily experiences, we see his gracious forgiveness and our need of salvation. So then, what does all that, that knowledge, what does that bring about in me? Does my knowledge of God and my faith in him produce fruit in my life? You know, we we talk a lot about baptism when we profess faith in Christ and believe in the gift of his life, death, and resurrection, and when we are, the moment we're immersed and we receive that gift of salvation, we've often maybe talked a lot about how, man, I I wonder if once I do that, once I get in that water and I get baptized and I believe, man, life is going to get so good. Everything's going to change. All my troubles are going to go away. Newsflash, that doesn't always happen. In fact, sometimes life can get even more difficult. But there is one thing that changes a hundred times out of a hundred, when you profess your faith in Jesus and are immersed into Christ. You know what that is? You and me. It changes everything because when we have a genuine faith in Christ and knowledge of who he is and what he has done, that changes everything about us. 
And we can't help but do good works for the betterment of his kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, our God, may we just be inspired by your creation. When we look around us and up to the heavens, may we be blown away by the majesty of your creation, Lord. And in the same way, God, help us to meditate on your word day and night, to know its power and the importance, and thus crave it at all times. May what we know about you change everything about us and compel us to do good work for your kingdom. Lord, may these words of our mouths and this meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you. O oh Lord, our rock.